Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, on today's episode, we are talking about determinism. And as I mentioned on Monday's episode, this is one of the perspectives on free will that Christians take. In fact, there are many, many Christians who hold to some form of determinism. And so it's really important for us to discuss because if you don't hold to determinism yourself, you very likely know a Christian or several Christians who do. And so if this isn't a discussion you've had before, then it's worthwhile uh, because we really should think through theologically the implications of some of these some of these ideas. And so as I said on Monday, I, I am not a determinist. However, I, I really do want to make a very honest attempt to present the best side of this argument to, to steel man it, if you will, rather than straw man it. And now obviously there's so much more than we can cover in any of these fruit snacks episodes. And so I'm with everything, I'm going to just give a very brief sort of thumbnail sketch of, of the view, but I, I don't want to, uh, purposefully demean it or or put it down. I, I want to really give it to you as I believe someone who holds this view would would want to do uh, themselves. So, what is the determinist position? Well, basically, it is a conclusion that is drawn from a very central and and core uh, idea or component of theology, and that is God's sovereignty. It's this idea that God is sovereign, which again, I don't know any Christian who is uh, uh, takes the Bible seriously who wouldn't agree with that statement that God is sovereign. Of, of course he is. But the idea that God is sovereign and that that sovereignty is absolute, that whatever God wants uh, because he's God, that God will achieve, that there is no one or nothing that is able to thwart the plans and the purposes of God. Uh, a, a gentleman named Fred Berthold summarized this idea of God's sovereignty from a determinist perspective as follows. He said, all events whatsoever are not only foreseen, but determined by the explicit will of God. That's the idea there, is that it's not just that God knows what's going to happen, but that God is in direct and sovereign control of whatever happens, so that anything that does happen is, is you could look at it a couple ways, that if something happens, it is because God explicitly willed that thing to happen, or you could sort of take the negative approach and say that, that only those things which God allows to happen will happen. So that uh, if God doesn't want it to happen, it won't happen. And, and that's that. Now, it, there is a biblical basis 
uh, for this view. And again, I want to be generous uh, with this because there really is a biblical basis for every view that we're going to discuss this week. The question is just really which biblical basis do you find not only most compelling, but the most complete when you look across the, the whole council of scripture. And that's for you to decide. But I want to offer a handful of scriptures, about half a dozen here, that would uh, directly support the determinist position and, and have been used in conversations that I've had with determinists before. In no particular order, we'll start with Matthew 10, 29, which is Jesus speaking when he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? In other words, God is behind even the most seemingly mundane events that not even a bird falls to the ground dead, except that God wills it. And so God is, if he is sovereign over things like that, he is certainly sovereign over the affairs of humans and the choices that we make. A very famous passage, uh, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then continuing on into verses 29 and 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a process that, again, at a face value reading of the text here, is entirely a uh, one-sided it's it's god who is doing all these things and we are as his people are just there being transformed we are we are the 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 passive participants in this passage that god is the one doing the work god is the one making these things happen in 1 corinthians 3:7 Uh, We see that uh, Paul writes, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That God is in charge of whether something happens or not as a result of our efforts. And so there's, um, there's certainly our efforts, but then God can decide whether anything will come of that or not. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, we read again another somewhat famous uh, passage. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So this idea that, again, that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. God is determining whether Pharaoh will be open or closed to what he's doing. And God is controlling, essentially, Uh, the heart of Pharaoh, so that the events that God wants to happen will uh, will assuredly happen. Two more passages here. In Proverbs 16.9, we read that the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And a little more explicitly in Proverbs 21, verse 1, we read that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
So once again, we see there are absolutely passages to support this idea that God is sovereign and that that sovereignty is absolute, that people may think that they have their choices, but ultimately whatever happens is up to God, not to us. So what's the problem? Well, again, if, uh, if, if we've done due diligence to try and present determinism as briefly, but as fairly as possible, I, I think there are a couple problems worth considering. One, and I mentioned this on Monday's episode, is that no one lives like determinism is true. Uh, there are lots of folks out there, not just Christians, there are actually uh, atheists and, and agnostics who also believe that determinism is true, that we don't actually have free will, that everything is uh, causal, and that we are just sort of a series of dominoes falling uh, over the course of our lives and that we don't really have control over anything. The problem is no one can live consistently with that view. You may believe that that is the way the world works and yet try living like it, right? And so it's an incredibly difficult view to live consistently with. Now that doesn't prove that it is in, that it is um, therefore false, However, it's worth noting that it is a view that cannot be lived consistently. To put it more directly, we, if you're a parent, we discipline our children, we punish criminals, we reward performance in school and in the workplace, we enter into marriage relationships with others, all on the basis that both we and those with whom we're interacting are under their own self-determination and not the direct controlling influence of Satan or God or any other person. We live as if we and those around us are not constantly under coercion, <laughs> frankly. And, and so that is uh, something to consider at the very least. The bigger problem, though, for me with determinism is that if determinism is true, it is unclear to me how God is not ultimately the author of evil. And, and I truly am not trying to be disingenuous toward a determinism. If you happen to be a determinist, uh, you may be aware that there are those who hold to determinism, such as uh, John Frame, even John Calvin, who wrote about this and how it was unclear to them as well that they, they really were not sure how to deal with the problem of evil given their understanding of sovereignty and free will. And I think if we look at uh, a passage like James 1.13, that we can also see that Scripture seems to pretty clearly indicate that that's not the case, that God is absolutely not responsible for evil. Because James 1.13 says that let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Instead, James lays the fault at the feet of the person who chose to give in to temptation, that it's as a result of our own lusts, our own desires, that we give in to temptation, that it is not God's fault. And so it is a, a little bit of a conundrum for the determinist, I, I think, to square theologically 
how God is responsible for every single action such that people cannot choose other than what they do choose because God has determined that they will choose it. And Scripture clearly saying that God does not uh, tempt people to evil or, or make them sin. And so it's just an open question for me. It's part of the reason why I'm not a determinist, but uh, I know that there, again, are there are people that I know that who are very dear friends of mine who do hold this position. And I, I wish I could say this about more things in life, but we are able to have conversations. We're able to disagree and we're able to still be friends. And uh, that's important too, I think. So as important as this topic is, I hope that you will uh, stick with me because tomorrow we're going to look at a related view called compatibilism. So I hope to see you then.